0: We are blazing our way through the book of Jonah in a series called Rediscovering God. Why? Because Jonah is a prophet in ancient Israel who was raised with the knowledge of God, but who turns out to have created a God of his own making. He needed to be retaught and reshaped, and his life becomes our lesson. And this morning, we're going to learn how his transformation led to the transformation of an entire city. We're going to talk this morning about revival. Turn to Jonah chapter 3. Let me read this text, and we'll pray together once more that the Spirit of God would speak powerfully to each and every one of us. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh, And proclaim to it, the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, Put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything, do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. For who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, would your spirit cause these truths to become so real to our hearts? Pray that you would awaken us, reawaken us as a community of believers as we learn about revival, what it is, what it means, how we can pray for revival to come even today. And as we do, we pray that those who do not yet know you, that today they would hear who you are, what you have done in Jesus Christ, that they would believe and be saved even now. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, in the year 1857, a revival began over a cup of tea. In Ireland, a young man by the name of James McQuilkin, his family was visited for tea by some Christian women who spoke earnestly and eagerly about the gospel. And as he was eavesdropping, he was struck by what he overheard, and this young man's life was changed. But the change did not remain with him. As a brand new Christian, he felt burdened to pray for others in the community and invited three also newly converted friends to join him. And once a week, they gathered in an old schoolhouse to pray for people in their city by name. They were praying for lives to be changed. The temptation to give up was great. Nothing seemed to be happening. Was it all worth it? But meanwhile, unbeknownst to them, other Christians throughout the same area began to experience a similar burden and began to pray also throughout Ireland. And it was then that everything changed. Within two years, cities were transformed. Crime went down so much that the jails were virtually empty. Churches began to pack. Prayer meetings started to form. Generosity abounded. The influence throughout the entire United Kingdom. And by the year 1859, 100,000 people were saved. It's known as the Great Ulster Revival. And it began with a simple conversation over a cup of tea. Now, if you're here with us this morning or joining us online and you are not yet a Christian, stories like this may make you curious or perhaps even skeptical. After all, when you think about the church, it might appear to you to be a bit of a mess. There's no way that transformation in our world and our society is gonna come through the church. I mean, have you seen the church? You might be skeptical, unlikely to be a source of change. For the rest of us, you might be a Christian, And if you're like me, stories of revival fill you with a mix of inspiration, but also a little bit of doubt. Let's be honest. You're like, have you seen our world today? Have you seen how dark, how bad, how difficult, how divided everything is? And we might even be tempted to get a little bit cynical. Oh, yes, the stories of old. Back in those days, you tell your children, yes, once upon a time, God moved. But as for now... Could it ever happen? Probably not. There's a little bit of inspiration and perhaps a little bit of doubt when we look out at our world and we see the state that it is in. And I don't want to ignore that. We are living in a great cultural moment of uncertainty. I mean, you cannot reflect on the events of the past year or year and a half without the overwhelming sense of of tension. There's political tension, economic tension, relational tension, moral and ethical tension, which has left many people divided, fearful, and confused. One writer recently put it like this, Jonathan Sachs, he said, the results lie all around us. The collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family the fraying of the social bond, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interests demand something larger, the loss of trust in public institutions, the buildup of debt whose burden will fall on future generation. Good luck, kids. And the failure of a shared morality to lift us out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, and relativism. We know these things, yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. As for the possibility of transformation, all the odds seem to be against it. But friends, I want to remind you this morning of this truth. The power of God changes the odds. The power of God changes everything. And the ancient city of Nineveh is our example Jonah, as we've learned over the last few weeks, he is a prophet in Israel. His role was to represent God to his people. But when God called him to deliver a message of mercy to his enemies, he ran from God. He boarded a traveling ship in the opposite direction. And it took a violent storm from God to stop him. And it was there upon those storm-tossed waves that he began to take responsibility He recognized that the whole situation was a consequence of his own sin, and he asked the sailors to throw him overboard. But we also learned that God is a God of second chances, for he appointed a great fish to save Jonah from death. Three days and three nights he survived until finally being spewed, or as the text says, vomited out on land. He has a second chance. To deliver this message. But make no mistake, it was no easy task. Listen, if you think our times are bad, think about the Assyrian Empire and its capital city, Nineveh. On the one hand, it was a wealthy, thriving, stable home of art and culture and medicine and education. But if you ask their neighbors, they might tell you a different story. Let me give you just a little sample of their moral compass. One historian writes of Nineveh, records brag of live dismemberment, inspiring, often leaving one hand attached so that they could shake it before the person died. They made parades of heads requiring friends of the deceased to carry them on elevated poles. They boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with ropes so that they could be skinned alive. Just think of Braveheart if you need a visual. The human skins were then displayed on city walls and on poles. They commissioned pictures of their post battle tortures where piles of heads, hands, and feet, and heads impaled on poles, eight to a stake, were displayed. They pulled out the tongues and they burned the young alive. The foundation of their success was built on violence, oppression, and immorality. And yet, we learn this morning in Jonah 3 that that entire city was completely transformed. How? To give it a word, revival. Revival is a word used often to describe a supernatural and revolutionary awakening on such a scale that the only explanation is God. And for us, knowing the marks of revival will not only help us to identify one, but to learn to live in expectancy of it and to pray for it. So what happens when revival comes? I want to answer three simple questions. Where does revival begin? What does revival bring? And why does revival happen? And the first thing we must know is this. Where does revival begin? Well, we learn from Jonah that revival begins with believers. Of course, we see it here in the life of Jonah. After all, he needed it. See, Jonah was a terrible advertisement for faith. As a prophet, his role was to represent God to the watching world. But he did the opposite. He actually played the hypocrite. He ran from God. He separated himself from the mission, and he misrepresented God altogether. But what I want you to notice this morning is what God does not do. God does not write Jonah off, nor does God lower his standard. Both would be easy to do. On the one hand, it would be very easy to write Jonah off in the same way that we might think it's easy for God to write off the church today. Have you seen the church? It's such a mess. It would be very easy. It would be very understandable if God said, my church is a mess. You know what? Just forget it. I'm done with it. But he doesn't do that. But neither does he lower his standard and simply allow a jaded Jonah to go about the mission in whatever way he's so pleased. Well, my church is a mess, but it doesn't matter. Well, my believers, my prophets are a mess. So, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to lower my standard and you can just go about it any way that you want. Of course, either would have been easy and even understandable in the same way that it would be easy for God to write off the church today. After all, it is often a mess. But instead, he pursues his people. Instead, he chases after them. And in doing so, he does not lower his standard. Because friends, what I want you to see is in Jonah is this, in revival God restores his people to faithfulness. That's part of his reviving work. It begins within the life of a believer. It begins within God's people. What exactly is that reviving work? It is his work in restoring his people to faithfulness. Now, why does that matter? One of the most common accusations that I hear week in, week out against the church is the accusation of hypocrisy. Many of you this morning, you've experienced it firsthand. Or you know a friend or family member who has. And perhaps you are even tempted as a result of seeing the failure and hypocrisy of the church, perhaps you might be tempted to become a little bit jaded. Maybe for that reason you become jaded about God. Stop reading your Bible and then you just start hopping from church to church before you might be tempted to stop going altogether because after all, look at the state it's all in. But what I want you to see is that a text like this reminds us that the people of God may very well be a mess and perhaps like Jonah, even hypocritical. But let me say this, the hypocrisy of believers should never be a reason to disregard God, but to listen more closely to him. I want us to take this to heart. Why? Because God is hypocrisy's fiercest critic, but he is also the hypocrite's only hope. Why do I say this? Because God does not turn a blind eye to the hypocrisy of his people in the same way that he did not turn a blind eye to the hypocrisy of Jonah. God doesn't pretend, oh, it's not so bad, wink. You know, just let's just sweep it under the rug. It doesn't matter. God doesn't care about the mess that the church is in. Oh, it's fine. Would that be a God worth worshiping? God is hypocrisy's fiercest critic. He comes with truth to correct his people as he did with Jonah, but he also, in patience and grace, restores us and calls us back to obedience. Friends, the hypocrisy of believers should never be a reason to disregard God. It should be a reason to listen more closely to him because his word both challenges us with truth as it did with Jonah, but also grants us the grace to respond to a new obedience. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening with Jonah. That's what happens in revival. God restores faithfulness to his people and the mission is relaunched. God speaks once again to Jonah and this time, He listens. Now, in some ways, the opening of this chapter is a repeat of what God already said in chapter one, but there's a subtle difference. Look at verses one and two. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Or as other translations say, whatever I tell you which is a wonderful description of obedience. Indeed, it's the only description there is. Because obedience, according to the Bible, is a whole-hearted, whole-life obedience. Yet sadly, the church, we often cherry-pick what we like and leave what we don't like in the word of God. I like what the Bible says about justice, but I don't like what it says about ethics. I like what the Bible says about, you know, God's wrath, but I don't like the idea of forgiveness or vice versa. Oh, I like the idea of forgiveness. I like the idea of grace and mercy, but I don't like the idea of holiness and sanctification and obedience. And we often cherry pick, which is so often the reason the people of God lack an effective witness in the world. But God does not turn a blind eye to it. He addresses it. But in doing so, he doesn't lower his standard. Rather, he meets his people. He changes them and changes us from the inside out and restores to us a renewed obedience. That is the result of God's reviving work in our hearts that we learn to listen to God's word and do it. That's what it says in verse three. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. And went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Here we see Jonah. He's restored to faithful obedience. He's relaunched into his mission. And it's all because the word of God came a second time. Friends, where is it that God might be speaking to you a second time? Where is it that the Spirit of God might even right now in your heart identify an area that you're familiar with, you know about, but perhaps you've trivialized it? Oh, I know God's wanting to change this in my marriage. I know that God is wanting to change this in my thought life. I know that God is wanting to change the way in which I function as a witness in my workplace or amongst my friends or my dating relationship or my parenting, but I'm just gonna push it to the side and we become familiar with it and we tend to domesticate it. Oh yeah, I know that verse. But we're not allowing it to hit home. Where might it be, friends, that the word of God is coming to you a second time? Where is it that God is wanting to restore you and I to faithful obedience? And the question for you is, will you listen today? What about Reality Ventura? What about us? Where is it that God is wanting to restore us? In what area of our church's ministry is God wanting to restore us to a faithful obedience? Friends, we must listen to the word of God, not trivialize it, not push it off, not harden our hearts to it, but rather allow the reviving work of God do its work in our hearts so that we are restored for mission, so that we are restored for obedience, because if we want to see change around us, it must happen within us. And that's where revival begins. God speaks to Jonah that he might speak through Jonah. And so it is for us. And that actually leads to the second point. Where does revival begin? It begins within us. God's grace restoring us to faithful obedience, even if he has to pursue us in his loving correction. But secondly, what does revival bring? What are some of the signs? What are some of the fruits that happen as we are revived and renewed to faithfulness and obedience? Of course, there is a specific nature to Jonah's restoration, which was a restoration to preach the word of God. And notice this preaching has incredible impact. It spreads throughout the entire city, even reaching the ears of the highest authority in the land, even the king himself, and with remarkable impact. As Jonah went through the streets saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What does revival bring? I want you to note this, because this is what we should be longing for and praying for. And that is an unusual effectiveness in the witness of God's people. When you read about what scripture says about revival, when you look at what God has done in history past, when his Holy Spirit moves and the people of God are restored to this renewed obedience, what begins to happen? We see an unusual effectiveness in the witness of the church as the gospel is being spread and as testimonies are being shared and as good deeds are done, which act like signposts to our loving and gracious heavenly father. There's an unusual effectiveness there. And I want us to to note even the evidences of revived preaching that we might long for it and pray for it, whether it's from the pulpit or it's from your your coffee table as you're sharing with others. Notice there is great clarity, simplicity, and authority. After all, it was a short sermon. Forty days! (laughs) But notice the great clarity. There's no muddying of the waters with vague hints, or embellishment, or exaggeration, or addition. It is straightforward, and it is clear. And friends, if we need anything in the preaching and sharing of the gospel today, it is clarity. Because sadly, there's so much vagary. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. Just like, well, can you imagine if Jonah goes to Nineveh? He's like, hey guys, I watched like a TED Talk and it was like kind of about like the philosophical foundations of societal reform, and I was just kind of wondering, maybe if you just watch like a, a couple of these like YouTube videos, there like, might be a couple of hints, suggestions, or perhaps even implications that maybe address some of the things you're doing, including the heads on the poles. I don't know, just, you know if you want, just, just say take a listen, but if not, no problem. Friends, what we need is great clarity. Here is what God has said and there's also great simplicity. There's no marks here of like extraordinary eloquence or genius that is required, though some people God might gift to be good speakers. That is not where the power lies. There's great clarity. There's great simplicity, and we also note authority. There's no softening of the message here. Indeed, we as followers of Jesus Christ are not at liberty to do this. As we present the word of God, it's not a mere suggestion. It is the living truth from the living God. We see it here. We see it throughout scripture. We see it throughout the history of revival that there is renewed clarity and simplicity and authority in the preaching of God's word. May it be so in our day. May this be what we long for and encourage and, above all, pray for. Now, having said that, some of you might be struck with the brevity of Jonah's message, which raises the question, is this all that Jonah said? Or is it a summary of what Jonah said? Now, the commentators are in disagreement here, but I believe it is a summary. And if it is a summary, it may be that what is recorded here is the part of the message that gripped their souls. The part of the message that struck them. The part of the message that resonated with them which leads to another sign of what revival brings, and that is a true awakening in the hearts of lost people. There's this unusual effectiveness in the church's witness, and as a result, there is a profound awakening in the hearts of lost people. And it would seem, it is very clear, that this message gripped their souls. They realized in that moment how it was that they were living and their separation from God. It's one of the marks of revival over and over again that there is awareness of sin. Now we might ask, well, how could that be? And how could such a response happen in, in a city that is so wicked, a culture so dark, and a society so powerful? And we might ask, well, how could it be in Ventura County That the men and women we know and we see day in, day out, would be so gripped by a message when it seems that all the odds are against it? Well, the simple answer is this. The city of Nineveh understood that the message of Jonah was actually a message of God. Notice verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It doesn't say, oh, Jonah, that was excellent. I loved your, like, three points. It was incredible. It was remarkable. He's like, oh, thanks. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. Also notice, it doesn't say they believed in God. It says they believed God. Because that's what happens when the word of God hits the heart in a transformative way. It's not simply an intellectual affirmation of the existence of God. There is a personal trust in God. And there's another side to that coin. They turned from their sin. Because that's what repentance is. When you turn to God, it is also and simultaneously a turn away from sin. Even happening amongst the highest power in the land. Verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Notice he even had the cows repent. It's wild stuff. Verse 8, but he let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. It's remarkable. Notice in this decree that there is a very real awareness of evil and wrong. And that it is both individual and corporate. You might say, well, why the big show? Well, if their violence was public, so should their repentance be public. It was both individual and cultural. And notice that the sackcloth. We might be wondering in our minds, well, what in the world? What, what's the point of sackcloth and what is the point of fasting? After all, these are not Israelite people. These are pagan people. Well, historians note that the ritual of fasting and sackcloth shows that the Ninevites have symbolically touched death. And it is in acknowledging this that they realize what their wickedness deserves. And in acknowledging the possibility of death, the Ninevites pray for mercy. The fasting and the sackcloth was to be a public declaration of their sorrow over their wrongdoing. This is one of the most remarkable turnarounds in history. The truth awakens dead hearts. Friends, isn't this what we long to see? Isn't this what we need right now? I don't know what it is in your mind. You think, oh, if if only we could have this happen in our world. If only this cultural shift happened. I don't know how you would answer that question. But however you do, it must start here. This is what we must pray for. Because this kind of transformation is not going to be found in the natural ability of you or I. Can I get an amen? It's not going to be found in how well we do church or how well our music is or how well our our preaching is going or how many ministries we have or how many programs we might have. Those, Those things in and of themselves might be good. They themselves will not cause the transformation. As an old pastor once said, we can only arrange the wood but only God can bring the fire. Look, he calls us to obedience. He calls us to faithfulness. Like, we want to arrange the wood. We want to grow in our gifts. We want to grow in our obedience. We want to be led by the Spirit as we do, but we have to know this. As we arrange the wood, only God himself can bring the fire. Only God himself can bring the truth about who he is and what sin is and what he's done about it all and make it real to the heart of a person who is spiritually dead. Do you believe that? This is a reminder that it is not gonna be through the natural ability that Reality Ventura has, but through the supernatural work of God's spirit. This is why we must long for this to happen in our time, and it is why we absolutely must pray. We must pray for the Holy Spirit to do his work of anointing the message as it goes out and empowering his messengers, us, as we go. We cannot manufacture this, nor should we. I mean, Jonah's preaching wasn't very good. There was no song and dance. There was no show. Also note, by the way, there's no miracles that happen in this story though miracles happen elsewhere in Scripture. There's no miracles here. There's no raising from the dead, though that can be a powerful sign. It was the simplicity of God's word delivered, awakened in the heart of the hearer by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because this is God's work, and this is what we should pray for. And this should also keep us from trusting in anything that we could possibly do. We, I And in all these conversations, like, oh, if we just did this thing, if we just talked about this particular topic more, if we just talked about that more, or if we just kind of like softened the message a little bit and kind of, you know, loosened it up a, a little bit, maybe we could kind of like bring people a little bit further and then we'll give them the old one-two, a little bait and switch. Like, let's try that one. To that, I'd like to quote, The great Martin Lloyd-Jones, wonderful preacher in London last century who spoke much of revival. Listen to what he said. Conservatives would rather work to reform church theology and practice. Intellectuals doubt supernatural intervention. Rationalists dismiss emotional enthusiasm. All convene committees and organize campaigns. But few will plead for revival. Would Reality Ventura be a church marked by pleading for revival? It's an honest question. I ask it of myself. Is it in my daily prayers to pray for the revival of Ventura County? Where is our confidence? I was reminded this week when I first joined the Reality family of churches back in 2004, my wife and I were praying along with Britt Merrick, who's the founding pastor of Reality Carpinteria, who was going to plant us. We were praying about moving to Los Angeles Hollywood in particular, and the task was daunting, and as we prayed about it over the course of eight months, God made it very clear that, yes, we were supposed to go, and so with great enthusiasm, I called Pastor Brent Merrick, and I said, hey, God's called us to go, so we're going to move to L.A. next week. We're going to start a Bible study. He said, no, you're not. You're going to move to Carpinteria, California, and you're going to do a prayer meeting. I was like, what? I don't want to move to Carp. Everything closes at five, even though it's got like the world's safest beach or whatever. Like, I really don't care. But as I began to reflect on that, like, wait, no, I just need to go to L.A., just like do the stuff. He said, no, you're going to move here for a year and you're going to hold prayer meetings. And so reluctantly, but faithfully, we moved and we began to pray. And men and women in in that church who had no like dog in the fight, as it were, weren't even from L.A., but just were compelled by the Spirit to pray, prayed week in, week out. And then a year later, when we moved to L.A. and started the church, we were so desperate because we didn't have anything together. We had to pray, and it became a part of the culture of the church. And my wife and I were reflecting on this last night. It was so incredible to see that over these first few years, hundreds of young people were coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. And I could tell you firsthand, it had nothing to do with the music because it was not very good. My sermons were terrible and by the way somebody at first sur- first service this morning said amen he must have been visiting there they were horrible like my father-in-law was like I can't even listen true story But as the gospel was going out, I remember just being moved to tears because I saw all these young people who invited their friends, who invited their their friends, and they just came more and more week after week, and they flooded the carpets with tears and accepted Jesus as their Savior. And 15 years later, I'm looking back on many of them are now in ministry because the Spirit of God was moving. And I'll tell you right now, it had nothing to do with how well we ran a church. It had everything to do with the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, my charge to you, my charge to us is that we would commit to plead for God's Spirit to move. When we pray in our prayer meetings, in our community groups, here on Sundays, these are all intentional efforts to emphasize our need for God's spirit. Ask him even today, we'll have a time of prayer in a moment. Ask him to make you more effective for the work of the gospel. After all, this kind of transformation can only be explained by the power of God's spirit. And that's good news because maybe some of you don't feel comfortable. Maybe some of you don't like confrontation, I get it. Maybe some of you don't feel gifted, I understand. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be an effective witness. Of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people he brings in your path, make no doubt. And we find encouragement in the New Testament knowing that it was a group of untrained men and women who the watching world could tell had been with Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit, and it is his work. That's the last point. Why does revival happen? Is it all because of the efforts of Jonah? Is it all because of the efforts of believers? Was it the character of Nineveh? That's a no. Was it due to the particular strategy they had? Is God obligated? He just phones it in? Because he must? It's very clear. Our hope for revival is in the sovereign compassion of God. There is humility even in the king of Nineveh for his royal proclamation does not presume on what God's decision might be. Instead, it rests on the hope, on divine compassion with a dramatic, verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And this hope is well placed for the same God who is just, and righteous, and who hates oppression, evil, wickedness, and sin, and will hold injustice and sin accountable, is also a God of compassion, and mercy, and grace, and love. And so it says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened." Now, it was not as though God was in two minds about being compassionate towards wicked people. Rather, he was waiting patiently as a just but also a merciful God who desires that none should perish but that everyone should come to repentance. After all, whose idea was it to tell Nineveh they had a second chance? It certainly wasn't Jonah's. It was God's idea And so the good news, friends, is that the king's question is answered. God will respond with compassion and not give them what their sin deserves. So what about us? What about Ventura County? What about Reality Ventura? What about the watching world? Well, the faint hope held out by this pagan king is not only echoed, in the rest of the Old Testament, but it is made an absolute certainty in the New Testament. Why? Because hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came into this world, he used this narrative to point to himself. In speaking to his contemporaries who were begging him for more miraculous signs that would prove his deity, Jesus said this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Wait a minute. How is Jesus, the sign of Jonah, brought to fulfillment? Well, here's why. Because he, like Jonah, goes down underneath the judgment of God, is swallowed up in death, and then is raised by the power of God to preach new life, to bring the good news, and captives are set free. Jesus himself said this in the next verse. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. That's a great mic drop moment, by the way. What was a faint hope For the ancient king is now an absolute certainty for us because Jesus, the crucified and risen savior, the ultimate prophet, he speaks his word to us so that you and I can know beyond the shadow of the doubt that if we trust in him, he will show compassion. He will redeem lost people. He will save people who are in spiritual death. He will restore his people to obedience. How do we know this? because he's already made provision for it through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it was there that he paid the price once and for all for what our sin deserves and rose again to give us the life that he deserves. So this morning, if you're here or if you're joining us online and you have not yet believed in the gospel, today is the day recognize this morning that apart from the divine mercy of God, there is nothing but eternal death and separation from God for you. If you were to die and breathe your last, it's eternal darkness. But you can know today that you are forgiven. You can know today that you will have everlasting life. You can know today that you are adopted and accepted because of what God has done for you in Jesus. If that's you, I invite you today to allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart and that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. If you're a believer, it may be that you've fallen from obedience. And it may very well be that like Jonah, you need to hear God's word a second time. And you can respond this morning by saying, God, I'm not going to trivialize that anymore. I'm not going to minimize your word anymore. Friend, if that's you, and the Holy Spirit is putting his finger, as it were, on a particular area of your life, listen to him. Do not resist him. He convicts you, but not to shame you, but to heal you. Or if you're like me and you've just grown weary, not believing that God could revive his church or redeem such a lost world, today we can ask for renewed confidence in the power of the Spirit. Today we can ask for renewed confidence in the power of the gospel. Today we can ask for renewed confidence in the power of God to change lives. In fact, I believe that this is a season where we need to be reminded of God's Spirit more than we ever have so that we learn to seek him and depend on him more than we ever have. So that we cry out, even this morning God anoint your word so that we see you for who you are may your spirit move so that we do what you've called us to do he did this reviving work in Jonah in answer to prayer and he often does it among his people in answer to prayer so this morning let us pray The story of Jonah is not over yet, but here in chapter three, he is revived, he is restored, he is anointed by God, and an entire city is redeemed. Can you imagine if that were to happen in Ventura County today? I hope that you would. And it's all because the word of the Lord came a second time. And may we all respond by saying, I'll do whatever you say, Lord, by the power of your spirit, because we're saying it to the one who's done everything necessary to save and redeem us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that your spirit would move so powerfully in our hearts that we would be renewed and restored to faithful obedience. If there's any way in which we have neglected or minimized or trivialized a particular area that you want to work in in our own hearts and lives, would you convict us and restore us today? May we not harden our hearts to your voice. May you cause us, Lord, to be a church that pleads for your spirit to move, that pleads for your work to be done. We know we cannot manufacture or manipulate, but you have called us to cry out to you and ask for you to do the impossible for such a time as this. And if there's anyone here this morning that does not yet know you, I pray that right now they would say, Jesus, save me. I realize that in sin, it's nothing but eternal death and separation from you. But I believe you sent Jesus to live and die on the cross for me. I believe in you, Jesus. I put my trust in you, Jesus. Be like the Ninevites. Believe God and be saved today. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now, we ask in your name.